0: Welcome to the CSIS Podcast, I'm Colm Quinn. On our second show this week, we're talking about Europe, the state of Brexit, and Austria's upcoming elections. But first, we begin with Catalonia, Spain's most prosperous region, and the centre of a fierce independence debate that threatens to pull Spain apart. The independence referendum of October 1st devolved into violence, as Spanish police attempted to stop the vote from taking place, resulting in 900 people being injured. But as Heather Connolly, our Europe Programme Director, explains, the tensions between Catalonia and the central government in Madrid have been building for quite some time. So
1: in some ways, you can't start on October the 1st because that's where the full policy failure happened. You've got to wind that clock back to 2010. And I'm going to do this really briefly because it's a very long and complicated story. But two things began happening in 2010. Um, The European economic crisis began to completely impact Spain, uh, causing Spain to to need a uh, 100 million euro, just a banking bailout, but it was in severe economic crisis. And Catalonia is an economic provider. It's a wealth transfer to the rest of Spain. And they were transferring wealth, and then they were being told, here's your austerity budget. So that was one really jarring, I think, piece of the puzzle. The second was in 2010, Spain's constitutional court basically shut the door um, on legally on being able to think through um, uh, some greater autonomy for Catalonia. So those two events clashed together in some ways, and set off this process that seven years later, we had um, Catalonia holding an illegal referendum because it, within the Spanish Constitution, it is forbidden to, uh, for an autonomous region to uh, express uh, itself in independence. So the fact that it was happening was a failure, a failure of the leaders to find a way forward. Uh, politically, both Prime Minister Rohoy uh, who uh, leads uh, the, the center right popular party, they were sort of in defiance of never allowing this to happen. And then uh, the Catalan uh, regional parliament that has gone through a series of elections the last several years had come to a point where its its sort of single mandate was to move forward for this independence. And so train wreck ensued. And, and so we had uh, 900, over 9 almost 900 people injured on October the 1st. And it's so hard to watch people who want to express their views at the ballot box, something we hold dear democracy, and having police, uh, you know, prevent that from happening. And that's what we saw on October the 1st.
0: Um, In terms of the popular support, is this more of a a Kurdistan where it seems to be overly broadly popular, more of a Scotland where there's kind of splits?
1: It's more Scotland-like. And what we've seen over the last 10 days is Catalan society deeply divided uh, about independence. You have those uh, very vocally that insist on it. You have others that say, well, we we want to be able to express ourselves. So what was so curious in some ways about this is uh, the Catalan people wanted to express. They wanted to have the right to hold that referendum, to, to share their views and say what they thought. But here was the ironic part. We're pretty convinced that they would have voted against independence in some ways like Scotland. So there were strong views about it, but once the vote was held and people said, no, we want to stay, but we they want to stay, but they want greater autonomy. That's sort of the the, the part of the conversation, which was not allowed to happen within the, the Spain-Catalonia process. So ironically, by creating these tensions, you make the two polar extremes more defiant, and that center, we call that sensible center, that wants to have their say, but wouldn't have voted for independence, but wanted more autonomy— that gets shut out when the violence and the defiance comes through. So um, so where we are today, if I can sort of leap ahead, in some ways where we should have been seven years ago. So uh, the Spanish government, uh, working with the, the Socialist Party as well as the Popular Party, have said we are going to create a new constitutional commission. They need to reform the Spanish constitution to allow a dialogue on allowing greater autonomy for the 17 autonomous regions. The problem is this thing is going to be very slow-moving. It's going to be six months. It's unclear what the composition is. But again, that's what should have happened seven years, to go- years ago, and we could have avoided what happened. Um, but it's going to be a very fraught process, and we still have this what happens next in Catalonia. The government has given um, the Catalan uh, par- president, Carlos Puigdemont, until Monday uh, the 16th to uh, clarify whether Catalonia is going to declare independence or not. Uh, and if he sort of continues to go yes and no, um, he'll have till Thursday. And then the Spanish government has to decide whether they would invoke Article 155 of the Spanish Constitution, which would basically begin the process of, of, of suspending uh, the autonomy that Catalan currently enjoys. So we're still going here. This is very fraught, but I'm encouraged to see people going back to what should have happened seven years ago and say, we have to look at this constitution. We have to allow a greater expression of autonomy, but within a unified Spanish
0: framework. Um, usually, you know, I ask the question, like, what can the U.S. do? This seems like more of a local, row. So in, in keeping with that, is there something the European Union can be doing?
1: Yeah, this has been my frustration, and we wrote a commentary on it uh, this week. It is, uh, tragically, ironically, you can pick your uh, adverb, the EU, it's, it's forbidden an EU law for the European Union to intervene in this situation unless they are invited by the Spanish government to do so. And Madrid does not want anyone involved in this. It is an internal Spanish matter. So that's the frustration part because this is also extremely sensitive across EU members because similar members have similar issues. The United Kingdom, although beginning a process of exiting the EU, Scotland uh, devolved powers. You have similar instincts, uh, separatist instincts in Belgium, in Italy. You know, you can keep on going down the list. So the precedent of having the EU enter into this um, would certainly be significant. Having said that, it to me is just a a tragedy of, of not having the EU that professes its own goal is to reduce conflict, increase European unity and solidarity, to watch what we all watched on October 1st and have such deafening silence coming out of the EU institutions, even the member states. I don't mean, yes, you can, you know, calling for restraint and, and all of that. But it just felt as if, again, the EU could not address these internal challenges. Uh, you know, another internal challenges, Hungary. And, the, and it's changed its constitution five times in, in more anti-democratic ways. Dealing with Poland right now, it just feels like the EU cannot deal with the democratic challenges within their, within their members, and is
0: that that's a structural problem or that's a problem of will?
1: It's a structural problem, to be honest with you. Again, it's they unless invited in. Well, if you have a government that is you know with abandon breaking rules norms, and you can't intervene because you haven't been asked to intervene, well, you're never going to intervene. Uh, and again, using sort of the Poland Hungary example, when when members are really struggling with upholding the values and the the institutions of the EU um, even to really begin some harsher punishment for misbehavior um, article 7 in the Lisbon Treaty you have to have uh, unanimous uh, consent among the members well in the case of Poland and Hungary Poland will always block any movement against Hungary and Hungary will now always block for Poland so now they you know the EU even the tools that it does have have never been used. Yet, I think they're now there's becoming now a growing trend of, of EU members that are really struggling. Now the EU itself can't even use its own instruments to uh, punish for that behavior. So it's it's certainly not a trend. We want these trends to turn around and not go where they are. But it does feel as if the EU is quite helpless to to address some some pretty glaring issues within its own members.
0: Speaking of the EU and their problems, <laughs> um, let's talk about Brexit. Brexit. We have not checked in on that in a while. Well,
1: there's a good reason because not much has happened. Uh, fifth round of negotiations were again this week, and nothing has happened. It's it's really stalled. Um, so the European Council is holding its meetings uh, next week. Uh, we'll wait to see what comes, what statements the Council issues on it. Um, so, again, there was a to, – to briefly go over something – heinously complex um, the sequencing of brexit is the EU and the UK have got to resolve three big issues first before they can move on to the future status of that trading relationship which is obviously extremely important they have to resolve uh, citizens rights between the European Union and the UK uh, citizens in each other's uh, respective uh, countries. And that seems to be moving along, but we're not there yet. But its it, I would say that one's the one that's progressing uh, the most. The divorce bill, how much? And that's still very much in dispute. Um, and then what we call the Irish basket of issues. Uh, and that's dealing with um, border issues, making sure there's not a hard border between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, dealing with a whole range of um, uh, trade issues. So much trade goes between those two countries. That's, again, on a rhetorically very promising path, but boy, the devil's in the details and how that works. So, because there hasn't been sufficient progress in those three areas, um, the EU, who, very unified at 27 on this negotiation, they have their mandate nothing's happened yet. They refuse to move on to the future. But the problem is some of those future issues are involved in the uh, the Irish issues. Because you can't figure out what the border issues really mean. Well, will the EU stay within a customs union? Or are they leaving everything? What will this look like? So some of them are caught up. So we'll see if there's a, a little uh, give by the European Union to allow a discussion to happen on the future trading relationship as they're still managing those three big challenges or whether the EU is going to just hold very firm and say, until we get some decisions on these bigger issues, we can't move forward. And tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. We have got until March 2019. And then today in a setback, the, uh, the British Parliament had to approve the withdrawal bill. That's now been pulled because they don't, right now the Conservatives don't have their MPs in a line yet. So it's just incredibly fraught, very difficult. We are really getting into the details of how this would work. We're getting beyond the rhetoric, and boy, is it complicated. So, nothing has happened uh, tragically. Um, so we'll wait and see.
0: And and you know, obviously, the the British government has its disagreements with the European Union. But as you alluded to, the the British government itself is divided. And yeah. and how Br- does that weakness of Theresa May play into that? Yeah,
1: it, it plays into it hugely. I, I like to say there was, you know, I think there was a Brexit. Path forward pre the June 8 snap elections and now we've lost. I think the British government itself has lost the thread. So just to show you sort of as a one step forward, one step back kind of uh, British dance right now. Prime Minister May gave this very much touted you know, significant speech in Florence, Italy, which was going to you know lay out this roadmap. And and that the biggest announcement in that was that she said the uh, the UK. Uh, would agree to and would seek a two-year transition period. So basically everything would sort of remain the same um, past the formal Brexit, the uh, March 2019, so that they could continue to have more time to figure out what the the, uh, post-transition relationship would look like. But uh, these issues continue to be undercut by disagreements within her own cabinet by uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, who's very much uh, pragmatically looking at the economic implications of this, trying to soften the economic blow to this transition where you have other, the, the so-called Brexiteers, Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, and others who don't want any softening and, and, and want to go boldly ahead, uh, very clearly, very crispy, very Uh, quickly. And they just continue to have this uh, constant battle that sort of never seems to be resolved. And it uh, sort of the capstone was uh, Prime Minister May's uh, um, speech to the conservative, the Tory convention in Manchester last week, where it was a, she was having a lot of, uh, she was coughing a lot. There were some, you know, pranks being pulled. And it just sort of was this Evidence of her her weakness in some ways of managing this this again this Tory fight that has been going on for decades about Europe and you just sort of wonder is she going to be the fourth Tory prime minister that will be uh you know caught in this uh, in this fight?
0: We're kind of traveling all over Europe That's right, all right now, <laughs> um, but I want to turn. We love to, to travel to Europe, <laughs> right? Uh, one good thing about these. Um, European elections, as they all seem to be on Sundays. Yeah, um, well,
1: that gives everyone time. No excuse. Yeah, You're not right. at work. Go vote. Right. Um, so
0: Austria is having its parliamentary elections <laughs> yes, this This Sunday. has
1: been, uh, and, and unless we uh, we are surprised, I mean, the Europe program here at CSIS, we have this long-running series called Election Watch uh, because we've had so many elections this year in Europe, ones that we knew and ones that came up a little more suddenly. Austria was pulled forward a little bit. Um, and we'll have one more uh, uh, the following uh, few days in the Czech Republic, and I'll, I'll mention that, so Austria. Um, so here you have a country of 9 million people, um, certainly had been impacted by the economic crisis, still has some, some um, higher unemployment than, than we would like. But the story about Austria and right now this election is the aftermath of Europe's migration crisis in 2015, and again, the continued aftershocks politically uh, that Europe has felt from that. Certainly, the immigration question was fully on the German ballot, and it's, you know, sent front and center on the Austrian ballot. About a year ago, there was an Austrian presidential election. Now, the president is a very ceremonial role. Um but uh, it demonstrated, uh, I think, two things that we're seeing across Europe. I would argue we're seeing them politically here in the United States. The political center is collapsing. Um, you can I, I would almost start to put it in the it has collapsed, but we're still in in process. And it's and to the extremes of sort of the the non party or uh, more radical voices, so in that presidential election, for the first time, the centrist the mainstream political parties were not even in the runoff. It was a green candidate, and then the far right uh, candidate Norbert Hofer. It, there was a series of problems. I had to rerun this election twice, but it, it the this the the freedom party's far right candidate almost won this election. So it tells you uh, things have shifted pretty significantly in Austrian politics. So fast forward to Sunday. What's also happening, because the political center is collapsing, um, what parties are now looking for, they, they can't sustain. They don't have the agenda. They don't have a platform. They're looking for a personality to sort of be what the party cannot be. So this is exactly what has happened in, in Austria, where a 31-year-old uh, who's the foreign minister, Sebastian Kurtz, has basically personified the party. So um, you know, it is, it is the Sebastian Kurtz list. So it's all about him. He's revitalizing revi- the, the center-right party, of which he's in a coalition uh, government-wise foreign minister. He has revitalized this party, and right now, if polls are right, and we always say polls are a snapshot, we don't know, but it looks clear that uh, Sebastian Kurtz's party will win probably 33% of the vote. But the Freedom Party, the far-right Freedom Party, who uh, is led by... uh, um, Heinz Christian Struck is uh, probably polling 27, 26 percent, and then the Austrian uh, Social Democrats, uh, Social Democratic Party uh, polling 23, 24 percent. So what you'll probably have, if this is correct, is the top party will be the center-right party. The next party will be this far-right Freedom Party. Uh, and you look at collectively, they could win over 60 percent of the vote um what does this mean this means that uh, the chancellor will be sebastian kurtz but it will probably also mean that the far right freedom party will be a part of this government if you go back in time in 2000 this is what the scenario was in austria when York haidar who was much more charismatic than mr strack um, was the um, leader of the party and was extremely popular won about i think at that point 24 25% so uh, and tried to go into government, and the EU tried to sanction Austria for for bringing this party into government. It back it, it failed miserably. It was totally backfired. So this sort of gets back to our first question about can the EU um, slap the fingers of governments that you know don't espouse the views? And this was you know this is a pretty very far right, very unrepentant uh, party. Not really. They tried, and it failed. Uh, But they tried, at least, to to do that. So here we go. It's all about immigration. And some have argued that um, the uh, Sebastian Kurtz, how, how he's really been able to both personalize the party, and so it's it's about him and his youth and his his vigor, but he's also moved his party very much in line with the thinking of the far right Freedom Party, similar to the Netherlands, exactly. And so this is where you just it's everyone will go, yay, you know, once again, we have uh, we've beat this uh, far right uh, illness. It's still the second largest party. They'll probably come in at historic levels. They're going to be in the government, but in some ways, the center parties are having to adopt their agendas to be reelected. So everything has shifted. And, you know, it, it really requires some reflection, and we hope to do this before the end of the year, that as we started the Dutch, Dutch elections in March, and oh, by the way, this week, they just formed their government. It took 200 days. It is a one-vote vote majority government, it tells you how hard it becomes in, in bringing together parties when you've got to work around the second largest uh, party, which was the Good It wasn't successful, but was still 20%. The, the fragility of these parties, they're cobbling them together, um, and the agendas of the center parties are starting to sound awfully like the far-right parties. So this is something that we're going to watch because in some ways we're warming up to the to the main event which will be the second half of next year likely spring of 2018 which will be the italian elections and that one will uh, we sort of have all of those ingredients of the immigration crisis certainly hugely on the ballot the economic crisis which italy is still feeling the impact of and a rising populist party the uh, the five star movement together with a pretty strong nationalistic uh, anti-immigrant party in the Northern League, and you know, here we go again. So it's not over. We're still in the middle of it. Well,
0: I mean, it's it's funny because if you looked at the polls, if you looked at the results of the elections, every one so far as here has kind of been few. You know, Marine Le Pen did not yeah. win in France. Uh, in the Netherlands, Kurt Wilders did not um, poll well. Uh, but from what you're saying, there's this undercurrent that is relentless, that this shift to the right um, and in Austria, they're going to be in government. So so I don't know how you, you fight back against that. I don't know um, where governments begin or where parties begin to try and win voters over to maybe a more, um, I guess, humane way of thinking.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, this, exactly. I mean, I, I've, uh, look, I'm, I'm we're, we're always grateful when we don't have catastrophic uh, results coming from elections. But this view that, you know, shoo. We're, we're all past this, and and there was sort of this um, theme, if you will, of oh, what the British did, and the American election. Oh, that has been that's an you know Anglo-Saxon containment. Uh, Europe has thankfully not succumbed to this, and I, I think it's a it's a misunderstanding, um, and it's 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 a recognition that yes, you may have sort of skated through this uh, election, but it's it's, it's like a bubbling cauldron. It's just continued to be fueled. I would argue the right is more organized and more disciplined, and their fuel is immigration, certainly. The left, uh, the far left, can be equally um, powerful. We're certainly watching in France... Now that the Marine Le Pen's party is is, is now divided uh, because of both some of the policies that she pursued, but also just uh, infighting, you're going to see, I think, a very strong far left, Jean- Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who's going to be sort of the face of the protests against what uh, President Macron is is uh, the reforms he's implementing. But you watch the German elections, uh, where you now have uh, the third largest party, is a, a party that, grew, you know, wasn't around until 20, you know, began in 2013, and now uh, ha- is the third largest party. Um, it's going to be very rambunctious in the Bundestag. You know, this just keeps going. We have to address the grievances. And, and I think the most difficult part is, Governments are going to have to be responsive to uh, those views, and they're not going to mean the complete sort of lockstep walking path of European integration. I think they're going to have to listen. They're going to have to slow down. They may have to make some adjustments and be flexible. And right now, European at the EU level haven't shown that flexibility. They sort of, the more they panic that uh, the anti, uh, the, the euro skepticism is growing, they want to keep doing what they've been doing, but faster and harder. I think it just cr- continues to create backlash. I think they have to slow down and really listen and be responsive to perhaps less integration and more addressing people's needs.
0: And that was Heather Connolly bringing us to the end of today's show. Remember this week we have double the podcasts, so be sure to check in on our Iran episode if you haven't already. Unfortunately, I'm out next week, so you'll hear from me again on the week of the 23rd. In the meantime, let me know your thoughts on the show by contacting me at cquinn at or on Twitter. That's it from me. Thanks for listening.